This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. People look at New Mexico and think of it as some remote, non-existent place. They come out here thinking that nobody will find them, that this is the Wild West, that they're completely anonymous. In 1993, four years after he started working for Les Wexner, Jeffrey Epstein would venture out west. He'd buy a massive plot of land in the desert, about 30 miles outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it'd be named Zorro Ranch. He picked a place that had absolutely no neighbors. He went to great lengths to buy a piece of property that there was nobody around. There is little out there. It's ranching country. And Epstein would attempt to blend in, keeping a few dozen head of cattle to graze the land and hiring some local ranch hands. But Zorro Ranch was no typical ranch. Well, he fenced everything off, and he put Zorro Ranch signs all over the place, no trespassing. The prerequisite for working there was signing a non-disclosure agreement. The owner, of course, didn't want anybody to report what he was doing or who was there or what it looked like. Epstein insulated himself with roughly 9,000 acres of desolate, untouched land, and he built himself an estate perched on top of a ridge where there's hardly another man-made structure in sight. He didn't think anybody knew where he was. He didn't think anybody would pay any attention to him. He was wrong in that respect. At the same time Epstein's wealth and connections were growing, so too was his real estate portfolio. And with each new property would later come allegations of abuse. How many occasions would you say that happened? 15, 20 times. Did it happen in more than one state? Yeah. Zorro Ranch, the island... Palm Beach. It happened everywhere except New York. From New Mexico... I've just pressed the call button at Jeffrey Epstein's ranch to see if there's anybody here who could speak with us. ...to his own private island. When we went out on a boat, they would say, hey, I, I would say, man, who lives over there? Is that U.S. territory? And then they would say, ah, that's pedophile island. I mean, there were young girls on the island a lot. Wherever Epstein had a home, there would be girls and young women who'd say they were trafficked there. Mr. Epstein lived in New York, Palm Beach, New Mexico, Paris, and had his own island in the Virgin Islands. And each one of those residences is an alleged crime scene. It started to become a situation where, you know, this was ruining my life in so many ways. My health, jobs, relationships. I mean, like, literally, literally everything. I think that we can really deeply intuit what is safe and what is not. And it, it didn't feel safe for me to acknowledge that this was such a scary situation for me. On my own island, on my own ranch, I can think the thoughts I want to think. I can do the work I want to do. I'm free to explore as, as I see fit. I'm Mark Remillard, and today on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein, part one of a two-part look at Epstein's growing empire and the growing scale of his alleged abuse. In this episode, we travel to New Mexico, to Epstein's Zorro Ranch, and hear how Epstein would allegedly use the promise of higher education to groom unsuspecting girls. Chapter 6. Zorro Ranch. 
What I understood was that Maria had a very wealthy boss, was sort of how I thought of it at the time, who you know, she was working for, who was sort of larger than life. You'll remember Annie Farmer from our second episode. She's the younger sister of artist Maria Farmer. She first met Epstein in December of 1995, when he paid for her to come to New York and visit her sister. She was 16 years old at the time, and says during the trip, Epstein began touching her as they sat in a theater watching a movie. He just sort of like put his hand out, like, you know, for for me to hold his hand. And I remember my hand being, you know, kind of sweaty because I was like very nervous about what, why he was doing that. And as we've heard, she'd return home from New York and not tell anyone about what happened. I was reluctant to tell Maria because I didn't want to upset her. But I also was afraid that it would be detrimental to her in some way into her career. But once back in Arizona, Annie would find Maria's boss continuing to insert himself in her life. Jeffrey Epstein, according to the family, continued to call uh, Annie's mom and express an interest in advancing her educational prospects and sending her to an Ivy League school. That's ABC News senior producer James Hill, our lead reporter on this podcast, who's been covering Jeffrey Epstein since 2014 and has spent years speaking with victims of Epstein's abuse. To the Farmer family at this point, Jeffrey Epstein is the boss of one of their daughters. He's a very wealthy man who seems to have the best interests of their daughters at heart. And you'll remember Janice Swain, Annie and Maria's mother. Annie was very serious about her studies, always. Epstein would suggest some ways to help Annie get into a good college. Annie wanted very much to go to an Ivy League school, and she worked very hard throughout high school. And at one point, Epstein told Janice about an opportunity for Annie at his ranch in New Mexico. He brought up the fact that he thought it'd be beneficial to me to go on some kind of international trip as a way of um, making myself a more appealing candidate for getting into college and that he had you know, some ideas about that and we should probably be in more touch about it. Janice says Epstein told her there would be a group of students there, all of whom were students he was helping get into college and offering to pay for trips abroad. Jeffrey first called me to ask me if Annie could come to their ranch in Santa Fe because he was... Janice says she wasn't sold on the idea at first, but she felt more comfortable that there would be a number of other students there, and when Epstein told her that his wife, Glenn Maxwell, would be there too. And he said he thought it would be a great opportunity for all of them to get together, talk about where they were going, and what they hoped to gain from these trips, including um, adding this to information for their college applications. One of the things that's important to stress is that Jeffrey Epstein insisted to the Farmer family, particularly Annie's mother, that Glenn was going to chaperone this weekend of high-achieving students who were there at Jeffrey Epstein's ranch. We assumed that he was married, Because when I asked him about his wife, he responded about Ghislaine. Of course, as they'd later find out, that wasn't the case. As far as the farmers understood, Ghislaine Maxwell was 
Jeffrey Epstein's wife. They were a couple who had interest in advancing the educational and artistic careers of young women. Annie would arrive in New Mexico in the spring of 1996. I arrived at the airport and there was a man with a little sign that had my name on it and, you know, a driver. It was the first time I'd ever experienced something like that, so it really stood out. The ranch was not in Santa Fe, you know, it was really in the middle of nowhere. The Galisteo Basin is just one of my favorite places in the world. It's just pure Western. So much of New Mexico is rugged and arid, but this is real ranch country, and it's grass just about everywhere you look. And just openness with zigzag horizons in every direction. A 40-minute car ride heading southeast from Santa Fe takes you into the heart of what's known as the Galisteo Basin, set in a sprawling desert sparsely dotted with cacti, juniper trees, and low grass. The dramatic landscape almost sounds mythical. Most people probably don't know what a hog's back is, but there are these ridges um, with rocks uh, protruding at the top. This whole natural wall of walk is like a spine, and it looks like a dragon, you know, and sort of undulating along the landscape. This is Gene Peach. He's been a photographer in New Mexico for decades. And his book, Making a Hand, Growing Up Cowboy in New Mexico, focuses on ranching life in the state. Galisteo offers seemingly infinite horizons of stunning western landscape. And it has its fair share of ghost stories. The Galisteo Basin is home to Pueblo Indian communities. It was became one of the gateways for the uh, raiding tribes to pass through. So there's, a, I think, a centuries-old history of, of Indian warfare in the Galisteo Basin. A self-described psychic told me one time several years ago that she can't even go through there because ghosts are, are everywhere from all the battles. And it's here, just outside the small town of Galisteo, that Epstein would build a multi-million dollar mansion on a crest of land overlooking the valley. It was called Zorro Ranch. The irony of anything named Zorro being owned by Jeffrey Epstein is as sharp as Zorro's blade. Zorro, Spanish for fox, was the beloved literary character popularized in TV shows and movies, a dashing, sword-wielding, masked vigilante who protected innocent victims against corrupt officials and evil villains. I am known by many names, but you can call me Zorro. But in New Mexico, Zorro actually has a different meaning. In vernacular, the Zorro actually means fox, but in New Mexico it means skunk. Maybe he didn't know that at Yeah, the I don't think he did. <laughs> Everywhere Epstein lived, he did his best to maximize his privacy. In Palm Beach, the home is hidden behind hedgerows and security gates. If you can see on that cliff over there, that's the mansion. Oh, wow, way out in the distance? That's correct. Okay. But Zorro Ranch is arguably his most private, thanks to its massive size that insulated Epstein's home more than a mile from the nearest public road. 
We saw it firsthand when investigative producer Chris Francescani and I visited there late last year. Yeah, it's just perched right on top of that ridge. It's the only structure you can see in any direction for miles. The location of Epstein's mansion is, my God, it's right on the edge of the drop-off to the Galisteo Basin. And the views from that area is positively spectacular and totally private. Only an airplane, only a flyover will get you close. And there's no way for a traveling salesman, (laughs) no way to just sort of chance by. It's it's very private. I think it's the perfect place to place the mansion. With that view, it's like a throne. The ranch looks like the backdrop of old Western movies. And in fact, many films have been shot in the area around Epstein's ranch. Galisteo has a film set. And you can see it from the road if you know what you're looking for. And the numerous westerns have been shot there. Silverado, Wild Wild West, Kevin Costner's Wilder, Appaloosa with Rene Zelliger. A number of films shot out here, and it's obvious to see why, because this is just completely untapped land. Nothing has changed, or doesn't appear that anything's changed in hundreds of years. But what is his most private residence is also, ironically, one of his most conspicuous. As we've mentioned, Epstein's main house sits right on top of a ridge. And at night, it's like a beacon on top of a hill, according to a neighbor who lives in the area around his ranch. It was most noticeable at night when the lights were shining on it, inside and out. That's when it was really an eyesore. And, I mean, it's very much out of place. It's an ostentatious, gigantic, really ugly building that nobody particularly likes to see like that. And if you're going to build a ranch house, build a ranch house. It looks like a hotel. It looks like a comfort suites inn to me. That's what it looks like. It looks like it's at least two, three stories tall. From this distance, it looks like a toy mansion. Yeah. Like somebody picked up a you know child's like? toy and placed it on top of the ridge. It looks like a Monopoly mansion. Epstein would acquire the property in March of 1993 for an undisclosed amount of money from the King family, a well-known ranching family which included Bruce King, the state's longest-serving governor. Bruce King was is from a major ranching family in central New Mexico and was the, one of the most popular governors in modern times. A real, you know, everybody calls him the cowboy governor. But Epstein was no rancher. He did, though, have some cattle on his land, and he paid local ranchers to take care of them. The last uh, report we looked at said that it was about 42 head of cattle. That's the New Mexico State Land Commissioner, Stephanie Garcia Richard. But why did Epstein keep the cattle? Well, it turns out that by doing so, he was able to acquire a lease on an extra 1,200 acres of state-owned land around his property. And in order to hold the ag lease, you have to have cattle. You can't do business operations, commercial development. Though, for the locals around Epstein's ranch, it was clear early on that Epstein had no interest in running a proper ranch. No one really knew what was going on. It was secretive, so everyone I spoke with in that vicinity, I got to know a number of ranch families in that area, 
And the rumors were that uh, it was a cult, some kind of a cult, because they had seen nothing like this. A lot of local folks that I spoke with told me that they assumed that Epstein was like the owner of Victoria's Secret. They'd see the women, they would see the models. That was the whole vibe. There was also an unusual amount of security for a cattle ranch. It's noticeable as you drive past it on Highway 41. It was all very secretive, and then the two security gates, big wooden security gates with intercoms and cameras and all of that. And it looks like right here up to the right for us is, this is the entrance to Zorro Ranch, uh, Zorro Ranch Road. Uh, it's marked by a couple big rocks. Um, a couple mailboxes. Yeah, a couple mailboxes, and, uh, and that's it. Now, there's a call box here. Would you like to buzz them and see if there's anybody to talk to us? What do you think? Let's try it. It says, warning, this property is protected by video surveillance. Smile. I've just pressed the call button at Jeffrey Epstein's ranch to see if there's anybody here who could speak with us. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Looks like there's nobody home at Jeffrey Epstein's ranch today. We'll have to turn around and head back. But the security measures weren't the only thing that was different about the ranch. I was told about, you know, by these folks who worked in some capacity at the ranch that they had had to sign a non-disclosure agreement and couldn't give me any details. And I had never heard of anything like that. There was always a mystery about the place. It was so secretive. It was unusual. It was glamorous. But the clearest sign that Epstein was different than the rest of the ranching community outside of Santa Fe was the massive home he would build. 33,000 square foot mansions are hard to come by in the area. When we did the inspection of the property, we were able to get uh, a pretty good layout. This is Jean Moya the district fire chief of the Galisteo Fire and Rescue, and she lives about 10 miles up the road from Epstein's ranch. As part of her job in 2002, she visited Epstein's property for an inspection that included going inside his home. You know, it was very grand and very uh, Spanish style. So it, you know, it has like the courtyard in the middle and then all the rooms with portals that, that come out so that you can look into the middle courtroom. It had a very large um, industrial kitchen, so you knew that he probably entertained, and an indoor swimming pool, and lots of bedrooms. And as she went around the property, she says it even seemed like the ranch was able to exist on its own with little need for outside help. Um, As far as medical, there was always a doctor that I know... At the time, I was told that a doctor lived at the village on an everyday basis. And then I think he had a cook. He had his airstrip. He had his own pilot. He had a home for his pilot. He had his main residence. Then he had a couple other residents that were on the back side that you don't see from the highway. He also had a mobile home back there and a small cabin. He did create a self-contained community, is what I would call it. In audio tapes shared with ABC News from a 2003 interview between journalist David Bank and Jeffrey Epstein, 
Epstein sheds light on why he may have found this cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere so appealing. On my own island, on my own ranch, I can think the thoughts I want to think. I can do the work I want to do. I'm free to explore as, as I see fit. But when Annie Farmer arrived at the property in 1996, Epstein's massive mansion was still under construction, and the ranch didn't consist of much more than a few structures and the ranch hands who lived there to keep care of the cattle. One thing I remember being you know, impressed by or being excited about was this old movie set, like an old Western movie set that was actually a part of the property. So they took me out there to, to see that. And as she arrives, she says something was off. And she gets to the ranch, and there are no other students. Remember, she says this was supposedly an educational trip with 20 other students. But Annie found herself alone with Epstein and his supposed wife, Glenn Maxwell, and nothing around but miles of desert. When I got to the ranch, and it wasn't as it had been described... It wasn't an immediate alarm. It was just sort of, okay, I guess, you know, this is somewhat different than what I, I must have misunderstood. They had a way of making you feel special in that, wow, these two people that are so important and so wealthy, and they're just wanting to spend time with me and, you know, um, wanting to show things to me and hear about and hear about my life and hear about my interests. So it was a, a confusing mix that way. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Annie says she put aside her concerns about being the only student on the ranch. It wasn't what she expected, but she says she decided to make the best of it. There was, um, you know, they had horses there and stables, this huge piece of property. You know, it's, it's New Mexico, so, you know, kind of desert and mountainous, really beautiful. The trip was the first time she'd meet Galen Maxwell. And Annie says that having Maxwell there, at least initially, made her feel more comfortable. Yeah, when I first met Galen, she was uh, instantly engaging in conversation and seem to know about me already because obviously of talking to my sister and, and talking to Epstein. So I felt quickly comfortable with her and uh, excited to spend time with her, actually. You know, 
because of the experience I'd had with Epstein in New York, there was there was just some bit of uneasiness around being with him. But I I really thought that Gillian's presence there, it made me feel safe. And because I understood them to be partners, I thought that he would never do anything with her there. So um, I was very happy that she was there. Annie says that Maxwell was charming and friendly to her. At one point, we went shopping and she was encouraging me to pick out things that she you know, that I might like. You know, so it just felt like girl time together. Maxwell, Epstein and I all went together to a Western store and they had me um, try on cowboy boots and encouraged me to pick a pair out to, um, to buy. And they bought these black black leather cowboy boots for me. I'd never had cowboy boots before. I thought at the time they just seemed like really expensive because it was over $100 for these cowboy boots. So I just felt like, wow, they're really treating me and wanting me to have, have a good experience. Annie was just 16 and says she was dazzled by the worldly, sophisticated Glenn Maxwell. Annie says she even looked up to her. I think she was in her late 30s at that point, and she uh, was was very fashionable. She seemed very confident. So as a young woman, she really, I, I looked up to her as you know, maybe an older sister type. But her impression of Galen Maxwell would soon change. In a lawsuit filed late last year, Annie says that at the beginning of the trip, she, Epstein, and Maxwell were in a home on the ranch when Maxwell casually mentioned that Epstein liked foot massages. It would be a good idea for me to learn how to massage his feet. And um, so her, you know, was sitting next to each other and she had one foot and I had the other foot. And she, you know, kind of showing me very specifically how to rub his feet. And I was, you know, of course, this was not in line with what my expectations were for how we'd be interacting. But they also had this sort of playful way that they would approach things that, you know, like, we're just silly and this is what we do. And so that was that was kind of the tone of it. They were really, really good at figuring out how to push boundaries so that, you know, they didn't push them so far that it was a clear, uh, clear violation where you, you know, immediately had alarm bells. It was like pushing them just enough that you were uncomfortable, but uh, you didn't really put up any kind of fight. You know, so I, I didn't say, no, I'm not going to do this. I just felt uneasy, but did it. Annie's lawsuit also details an incident she says happened when the trio went to the movies. We were kind of waiting around in the mall outside of the theater, and Gillian and, and, Mac, um, Gillian and Epstein were kind of just being silly and playful with each other. And I remember Maxwell sort of acting like she was going to like pull Epstein's pants down and starting to do that so that his, you know, his boxers were coming down. And this was in a public space, and so it was odd to me and kind of... Um, seemed really childish, but I didn't, you know, they were doing it with each other. They didn't do that to me. So I just was kind of, you know, laughing along. But, um, you know, it was it was weird. The film, she says, was primal fear. Annie says she was nervous about going to the movies with Epstein again, given that he had touched her in the theater in New York. But I was hopeful because Skeelan was there that it would be different. But she says it wasn't. 
Once again, Epstein began touching Annie during the movie. And Epstein sat himself next to me and very quickly started doing what he had done in, in the other theater, which was you know, holding my hand and caressing me and, um, you know, kind of touching my feet and my leg. The only difference this time was that in New York, Annie thought Epstein was trying to hide his advances. But this time... He did not appear to be hiding it from Gilan, which was odd to me, again, because what, what I understood was that they had this romantic relationship. And so um, it, was, it was strange to me that he would be doing this in front of her. And so I, could, I wondered, does she know this? Is she aware of this? It was very similar to what had happened the first time. It wasn't really, I don't think he became more aggressive, but it was just like normalizing like this is, oh yeah, this is just a thing that of course I would do in this setting. I didn't pull away. I think I was more stiff, you know, more kind of frozen, right? Just letting it happen and hoping it would, he would be done soon. Even when I think about it now, I kind of get a sick feeling in my stomach. After the New Mexico theater incident, she says her time with Epstein and Maxwell would only become more frightening. Once back at the ranch, Annie says in her lawsuit that Glenn Maxwell told Annie that she wanted to give her a massage. I think if Epstein had been suggesting that, I would have been clearly alarmed. But I felt more comfortable because, um, you know, because she was a woman. And so she set up the table and uh, arranged it. So um, you know, she, there was a sheet on top and she said, OK, you, you know, get undressed and then come lay on the table, put the sheet over you and then um, I'll, give, I'll proceed. Right. It was presented in this way of this is what's this is what's going to happen. You're going to be getting a massage now. And they also worked so hard to explain why that would be a good thing that it felt like something you would not refuse or, you know, could not refuse. Annie says Maxwell started to massage her and that she couldn't help but feel that there were eyes on her. Where the table was and, and the way that the space was arranged was that I was very aware that um, the door was open and I could be seen, like, like getting a massage, you know. So I was laying on my stomach to start. And then at some point she has me turn over to my back. And then at some point she just takes the sheet down. So, you know, and I wasn't wearing a bra. And so she, you know, exposed my breasts. And she, you know, touches me around my chest, but not, again, it was like blurring the boundaries of, is this, is what's happening here normal or not normal? I, I don't have no point of reference for this. I'm not, like, I feel uncomfortable. I feel like Epstein can probably see me right now, but I'm also not looking for him because I don't want to see if he is seeing me. I'm trying to just kind of get this over with. I guess what's hard for me now is how much of that was for her and how much was for Epstein? Or was it just for both, right? And and I don't know. I think that there was some kind of pleasure she got, obviously, out of pleasing Epstein, and then possibly pleasures she also just got out of doing these things herself. And that is, is confusing for me to tease apart. Annie says she was alone and afraid and felt that she couldn't call for help. So she continued to act as if nothing was wrong. I think there was a way that they operated that really made people feel like they didn't have options and that there was just as much threat in leaving as there was in staying. So staying was the unknown commodity and leaving, you don't know what that threat is and what, what could happen to you. 
She felt completely isolated. It wasn't as if there was anybody else around that she could say, hey, I don't feel right here. I think that we can really deeply uh, intuit in, in certain moments like what is safe and what is not. And it, it didn't feel safe for me to, to acknowledge that this was such a scary situation for me. So I just needed to like... just to manage that and to go on as if everything was normal. But by the next morning, Annie says her situation would become even more frightening as she'd awakened to Epstein coming in her room. Epstein came in and I was, you know, I was in my pajamas under the covers in, in this bed under this big white, you know, kind of duvet um, cover. And um, he just sort of bounded in in his way a very kind of silly um, and said, oh, I, you know, I'd like to cuddle or do you want to cuddle or, you know, something to that effect. And um, proceeded, of course, he wasn't actually asking for what I, what I wanted or, if, you know, wasn't waiting for me to agree to that. Um, but he got into bed with me then. And I was very uncomfortable with that and I think it was one of uh, the moments that was the most scary for me um, of my time there with them because um, it was just like this was one of those boundary violations that was so clear like no adult man is going to crawl into bed with you and and have you know and that that that's okay. Terrified and uncomfortable Annie says she comes up with a reason to get out of the bed. I do remember um wanting to get out of it and making an excuse um, to, that I needed to go to the bathroom and, you know, getting out of bed and getting into the bathroom and shutting the door. I think I just was in, in the bathroom long enough to make sure that that would not be something he would be expecting to continue and trying to sort of, you know, change the subject, switch gears, and we're not going back there. She would have little contact with Jeffrey Epstein and Galen Maxwell before she flew back home to Arizona. And like her trip to New York, she'd keep it to herself for some time. I don't remember that much about when I arrived back in Phoenix, but my mom said that she was trying to engage with me in conversation and, and talk to me about the trip. And I just said I was really tired and I didn't want to talk about it. Whenever she got back, I tried to talk to her about what had happened at the ranch, and she simply said, I'm not going to let this ruin my life. And I don't want to talk about it. So I respected that, and I, we didn't discuss it anymore. I felt so um, uncomfortable with everything that I did not talk to anybody about it. I had really close friends, um, and, you know, I'd been dating somebody. I didn't—I just— did not talk to anybody about what had happened because it was, you know, I didn't want to ad admit that. Um, I didn't want to admit what was going on was going on to myself or to them. I did not tell Maria. And it, it, honestly, I don't remember even considering telling. And part of that is because it felt like it was so personal that some, somehow they were really interested in me. I didn't think, oh my gosh, maybe my sister could be in danger. I need to give her a heads up in case, you know, they could do something to her or do something to someone else. It just felt like 
I feel so gross about what's happened, you know, and embarrassed about what's happened that I both don't want to talk about it because of those feelings. And also I don't, again, want to get in the way of something for Maria or make other people worried or make other people feel guilty. So it's probably better to just try to avoid this. My sister never shared with me anything about what had happened, what had transpired with Gilan and Jeffrey, and I think mostly because she was concerned about me, which is heartbreaking. She was the child. Sometimes uh, a child in the family won't even know that it's happening to someone else. This is ABC's Sonny Hostin, a former federal prosecutor who specialized in child sex crimes. I've heard that many, many times. Oh, my goodness. You know, I thought that it was only happening to me. And I thought I was actually protecting my siblings from it happening to them. I've had cases where people are more devastated that their siblings were abused because they thought by subjecting themselves to the abuse, they would be protecting their their siblings. Maria Farmer says when she was assaulted by Epstein and Glenn Maxwell in Ohio a few months later, she was totally unaware of what had happened to her sister. We heard Maria's story in episode two. And I sat down and they proceeded to um, touch me. I remember being in a lot of pain. I remember having some bruises. Maria alleges that after the assault, she called her father to come get her. And when she finally left, she says all she wanted to know was where her sister was. But the main thing I was thinking of at that moment was, where is my sister? Where is my sister? My sister was with these people. Where is she? And I'm lying there going, I don't even know where Annie is. This happened to her. I know this happened to her. Maria would reach Annie by phone. Annie was in Thailand at the time, taking part in the overseas trip that Epstein paid for. I was really excited and you know, to go and really enjoyed the trip, but it was definitely a bit of a, a shadow in my mind as I was going, feeling like I should be grateful to Epstein for providing this opportunity, but also having such you know, conflicting feelings about that. Annie's lawsuit says it was during this call that she told her sister what happened to her in New York and New Mexico. I just knew that she was worried about what had happened to me. And so I remember... Um, mostly being reassured that we would never have to have any contact with them again um, and being relieved, you know, just being really relieved that they were sort of out of our lives. And as we heard in episode two, Maria says she spoke to the FBI in 1996 following her own alleged assault. And she says she also told the FBI that something had happened to her sister as well. It would still be years, though, before Annie and Maria's mother, Janice Swain, would learn the full extent of what had happened to her daughters. Annie was grown before I found out exactly what had happened. And I think that she and Maria both had held so much inside with this that they they didn't really want to worry me and they didn't want to discuss that much with me or with anyone for a long time. I see a lot of people vilify the parents, and that is so unfair because I would like for those people who are vilifying the parents to meet these grifters who are such pros and could convince anyone of anything. There absolutely is a grooming process for the parents because I think the most successful abusers 
make the parents comfortable with it too somehow. Uh, you know, even if the alarms are going off in the parents' minds, they're made to feel like, well, maybe he is okay, you know, and, and maybe the red flags that my adult mind is firing off, maybe I'm wrong. It's actually, the, in my view, the last piece of the puzzle for, for the abuser. Um, if I could go back in time, of course, I would want to let people know what had happened. Um, I'm, but I think it's it's easy to blame yourself for something like that. I think that's something I, I know I have done previously, and I know a lot of a lot of people do. Is you know, why didn't I? Why didn't I tell him as soon as he tried to grab my hand? No. Why didn't I? let them know I wasn't interested in rubbing Epstein's feet. And, you know, once it got pushed further, why didn't I tell people? But I, one of the things I've had to do is to, you know, really work on understanding that that's not my fault that I didn't respond that way. And also that that was a part of the way they operated as they were really good at making you question yourself and therefore making people stay silent. So, of course, now I wish I had, you know, I had told Maria, I wish I had told the authorities but um, I understand why I didn't. Annie would file her lawsuit against Jeffrey Epstein's estate and Galen Maxwell in November last year. But so far, as Galen Maxwell's whereabouts are unknown, she has not responded to the lawsuit. And likewise, our attempts to reach Galen Maxwell have been unsuccessful. However, Maxwell has previously denied any wrongdoing. Today, Annie says she recognizes that all of it, the promises to help with education, the shopping, the movies, the massages, were all part of the grooming process. She says she believes Maxwell and Epstein were attempting to make Annie comfortable before the physical abuse began. It's just so clear how much they were grooming me for sexual, to sexually abuse me. And how much that was starting over the course of this weekend, little by little, um, in terms of making me doubt myself and pushing my boundaries and touching me and and confusing me about the you know the way they touched each other. It's so clear to me that Maxwell was a really important part of the grooming process because that was the really I would not have been there if she was not there because that was what made my mother comfortable with it that was what made me comfortable with it after the behavior he had displayed previously I, you know, I convinced myself I was safe because she was there so he understood that and she understood how powerful her presence were and they worked together as a team I think I don't know how Jeffrey Epstein made his money but I can tell you it wasn't on ranching in New Mexico we've also learned since our trip to New Mexico that late last year, the state identified some irregularities with the paperwork Epstein submitted in order to get those 1,200 acres of state land around his property. We um, looked back through the documents and and determined independently that some um, misstatements had been made in the documents. It turns out that as part of the leasing process, the land is supposed to be appraised under penalty of perjury by a, quote, disinterested third party. And when they looked at who signed those documents, these um, independent third party 
documents we found were signed by someone who's now become sort of a, a notorious part of this whole story, uh, Miss Maxwell. She had signed these uh, independent third party forms. And we know now that, you know, that individual was not an independent, disinterested third party. And the, the leases never should have been awarded in the first place. The state has since moved to revoke the leases on the land and has reached a settlement with representatives from Epstein's holding company that owns Zorro Ranch. Garcia Richards says they want to see the land return to its original purpose, supporting New Mexican ranchers. We've got ranching families that have been around for generations, leasing this land for generations, running cattle. Obviously, we would love to see it back in the hands of a local ranching family. Separately, we've also learned from multiple sources familiar with ongoing investigations that the New Mexico Attorney General's office has spoken with some alleged victims of Epstein's and that they forwarded their information to prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. I think that it's clear, I mean, that they were master manipulators. And I think a part of that is recognizing the bonds between people and using those relationships against them. And so I think that it's a particular type of, of sickness that they displayed in um, taking advantage of, you know, uh, the love yes. you have for a sibling. The farmers wouldn't be the only ones who say Epstein would take advantage of the love that siblings have for each other. He doesn't care. He really doesn't care. For him, I think people are a sport. Next week on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein, part two of our investigation of Epstein's empire, we visit one of Epstein's most extravagant purchases, his own private island, where some of his most violent abuse is alleged to have happened. Uh, the two islands that we're looking at right here to the left is Little St. James, and off behind us is Great St. James. Those are both the islands that are owned by Jeffrey Epstein. They told me I'd need a passport. I didn't really know why. They said just in case. I didn't have a passport. I mean, there were young girls on the island a lot. It was always unsettling, but it's made very clear from the start that you don't interact, so... I certainly didn't ever walk up to one and say, hey, you don't look like you're 18. Can I see some ID? That's not my role there at all. You were on the island? Yes. Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein, is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio, written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard. Produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, Chris Francescani, as well as senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Tiffany Omohundro, Hallie Freger, Prithvi Takei, Kate Holland, Caroline Hyland, and Alexandra Myers. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Vlasto is Senior Executive Producer. <laughs>